great opportunity. Um, so they're going to be leaving us. This is actually their last Sunday with us for, for a while. Um, and so we want to take some time to actually pray for them after the service and send them off well. Um, but if we could, um, just for a quick moment here with everybody, I just wanted to pray for them. And then what we're going to do is, we haven't told you this, so hopefully you guys have time. Uh, <laughs> we want to gather just some folks and actually spend some time sending them well. So we're going to meet up in the um, in the balcony after. So if you know Justin Ra, if you've been part of home group with them, if they've a lot of the college students, they've been running the college ministry here for the last year, and just to, to pray for them and uh, and send them off well. But I want to just pray for them now uh, as a church. Lord, we thank you, um, and we recognize that as a church family. Um, especially in a city with a lot of young folk or just in general. It's a very transient space and a, even a transient time we live in. And, and so we know and we hold, we hold these friends and people that we love um, hopefully strongly and, and loosely at the same time. And we recognize, Lord, that there are opportunities and, and, um, and we hope just beautiful things and redemptive things to come for them, for the mission and the places you've called them, Lord, for their marriage, um, and that they would just be a blessing, Lord, not just to each other in this transition, but a blessing to the, uh, the people that they meet, uh, to the friends, to the church, to the opportunities they have to engage in work. And so we, as a church family, we, we just pray blessings on them. Uh, we pray for peace. We pray, Lord, for wisdom and, and great, great clarity, Lord, in this new season. And so everybody said, amen, amen. So please, can we give a warm round of applause for Robin? <laughs> so please, please take an opportunity to meet, meet them for as, uh, as ever long as they're able to hang out. And just we want to have some really intentional time just praying for them as we go and speaking life over them. Um, the second thing that's happening, um, and we'll make sure to delay this a uh, good 10 minutes so it doesn't interfere, so you don't have to miss that. I announced last week um, for a number of different reasons, uh, and many of you probably know if you in any way have been watching the news or been dialed into your Facebook feed at all. Uh, there's a lot of, of questions and wrestling and struggling about what it means to be um, uh, what it means to care for life at every step of the journey, and in particular, um, the unborn, in particular, uh, the, uh, the, the children that, that sit inside the mother for the first nine months. And how do we as a church engage well and pray well and think well around uh, an issue that Christians uh, from very, very progressive to very conservative have actually been relatively in line together with for, for centuries. And, and what does it mean in this new moment to engage this and to, uh, and to be truly pro-women and pro infant and pro-life across the board. And I know all these words are volatile and scary and don't worry, we're not about to organize a march or anything like that. But what we do want to do is think well as individuals about this, think well as family. And so there's a few things that I want to say as pastor. And um, there's a few things that I want to point us to, some resources to engage and to think. Uh, I don't have the last word in our family. It's not how this church runs. Uh, just because you, your opinions don't line up with me doesn't mean you can't be a part of the family. Uh, and then also, what does it mean for actually take some steps that are truly life-giving and holistic? Uh, so 
I say all that and that what we're going to do is we're going to meet actually up front here and we're going to be a 10 minute delay. So at the end of the service, you can just hit 10 minutes, hang out, go and pray for Jess and Rob, uh, and then come back here and we're going to do just a short workshop. Um, And it will not go long. It will go 30 minutes tops and then you can stick around for Q&A after. Actually, probably be even less than that, more like 20 minutes with Q&A after. So that all good? We went from paw socks to massive pro-life things to saying goodbye to friends. Good old sanctuary whiplash. Uh, So I'll be very brief. I want to welcome Lonnie Parker up, who has become, uh, he and Drea uh, have become um, just amazing. uh, And I I would say this in an amazing sense, like just very quiet leaders in our community. Folks that they have discipled, taken in, cared for, prayed for, ways that they have been a support to me and a lot of other folks in leadership has just been um, beautiful in that it's been understated. (laughs) And I really love that. Uh, And Lonnie uh, has just been someone I've had the opportunity to connect with more so over the the last, I don't know, however many months. Um, And um, God just put it on my heart that he needs to be one of the voices up here teaching us uh, what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. And so this series that we've been going through, we've called Day One. And the idea is simply uh, around spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. If you're new to that language... Uh, it's basically saying there are regular rhythms like going to the gym, like developing your craft, uh, like working hard in a particular area in your workplace. We know what it is to sort of, quote unquote, like beat our bodies into submission to like do the thing that we feel called to do, to actually focus ourselves and do stuff that's not super fun, like running, lifting weights, like training for this, like practicing this act or craft over and over and over. But because there's something we realize that is greater that we're looking for. And Paul says, how much more so with the way of Jesus? Uh, If we want to wake up to the life of the ages, wake up to abundant life. If we want to be people that are dialed in and in line with what we believe is most true about who we are and who God is, then there's actually daily rhythms and disciplines that we can adopt. And so what we've done is taken these disciplines and focus them uh, around these directions that we sort of have in our church that help guide us. We travel inward, we travel upward, we travel outward, and we travel together. These are just ways and markers of saying these are values we have to recognize there's brokenness in our own heart we need to deal with and God wants to bring healing, that all of this starts from a posture of worship, that we want to move outward, that we should be people serving the poor, doing justice, caring for the broken, announcing the good news of Jesus, and that also um, we do this all together and we travel withward. So today we're going to spend a second week on the inward discipline and, um, and Lonnie's going to come and share with us about relinquishing the false self uh, which may not sound um, or may sound a little, a little bit convoluted and strange, uh, but <clears throat> we're going um, to do that anyway. Is that cool? That was a lame landing to that introduction. Lonnie Parker, everyone. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So I'm Lonnie, as Andrew uh, alluded to. I don't use an iPad. I'm nervous. I don't trust technology that much. Um, I just I just had this like nightmare. I was like, oh my goodness, the iPad's going to lose battery, or I'm going to drop it. Uh, but I will use my phone to keep time. Uh, first and foremost, thank you uh, to Andrew, and thank you to the core leadership. Andrew introduced me as um, uh, one of the leaders here, and I am. But and, and as well as my wife, and we have a one year old daughter, Olivia. She's a leader in training. But we are um, we we got here into Rhode Island probably around 2013, uh, January 2013, and. Um, it's been an amazing church that we've, we've, uh, the Lord led us to. I mean, we just, we don't believe anything is by accident. So, um, 
we actually, but there's a core group, a core leadership team that's been here since the beginning. So there's folks um, from all ages that were responsible for um, the evolution of Sanctuary, where it started out as, uh, as a youth ministry and, and now to where it is uh, today and where you all sit here. So um, thank you to them and thank you for their trust in Andrew for whom he um, has, has been guided to allow to speak. I consider this a tremendous honor. Uh, I know we don't have tons of time. I'm not going to try and talk your ear off, but all I'm trying to do is just share my faith. Um, I don't believe we're called to preach uh, and, and slam the Bible over people's heads and make them believe what we believe. I believe we're called to share what we've experienced about who Jesus is. So there's that. The second thing, and I didn't really realize this, but I didn't know there was a baby dedication. And I also didn't know Andrew was going to have a whole other litany. So I, I've been in churches and times where somebody will say, hey, man, you got to go to my church. You got you to gotta hang out. It's, it's, it's a great place. The, the teaching is awesome. And then you get there, and it's like, all right, this is a fabulous place. I, mean, I love the, the ambiance, but I, I have things to do. I have things to go. So I, I apologize if, if it's gone kind of long, if you're used to kind of a, a wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, kind of service. Um, but what I would encourage you to do is to avoid adopting what I've, I've been thinking about as a, a nice little phrase, um, adopting this K-cup Christianity philosophy where, um, you know, you only come for the little pieces. You, you may really enjoy worship, and then once the pastor starts talking, it's like, okay, that's, that's cool. That's pretty interesting. Um, but I'm really, I really enjoy the worship. Or you're really about tithing, really about, hey, I got to get to church because I got to get that money to the Lord. Um, this is worship. And so for those of us that follow Jesus explicitly, this is our time from start to finish. Um, I enjoy the, the baptism. My goodness, that's such a beautiful thing. That's such an amazing opportunity uh, for family and friends and parents to, to come together and bring their child before the Lord. So I, I try to take it in stride. That's why I try not to plan anything uh, for the rest of Sunday because I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but but I, I just hope you will try to take this. And it's not, it doesn't happen like that. Because I, I was like that. I actually, uh, I deliberately, when I was at a different point in my life, I would actually deliberately come to a church 15 minutes late. I wasn't really into the whole greet your neighbor thing. I mean, I know it's in scripture and we're supposed to do it, but I was like, I just, I came to give my money. But that's why this is a process and hopefully we grow from that one step to another step to another step. Um, and, and again, I'm just, I'm thankful to be here. So uh, the scripture uh, that we will go with, and I'm working with Chris uh, to help me out is Psalms 139. It's, it's not an all-inclusive um, scripture meant to, to be the focal point because I'm going to speak from scripture, but uh, just to read it. Uh, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And what that, that relates to the whole concept of relinquishing the false self. Um, and so you can kind of take that where it is. But before we start, I just want to, so people are a little bit more comfortable with who I am, where I came from. Uh, like I said, Andrea, my wife and I, we came to Rhode Island in 2013, and we've, uh, we came from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I always found it interesting when people kind of allow the congregation to know more about themselves. They show pictures. So I'm going to show a couple pictures. So that's me, and that's my mommy with her 1973 glasses. And she's coming actually next week to visit, so please nobody tell her that I showed this picture to you. And, and there's another picture. So that's, that's me when I was a really little baby. If anybody knows my daughter, Olivia, I take responsibility for her looking mostly like me. Uh, but again, we're still in the 70s. I mean, I was born in 82, but, um, you know, she just didn't update the fashion. Uh, but the, 
I love, I love the cheeks. Cheeks are just all, and my daughter has those cheeks. So then we go to my father, and that's my dad. And so we were actually in the airport, and they took a picture with my dad and a picture with my mom. And there's another picture. There's one more. So that's my dad. I think I look the most like the one in the top right, because I always have that, like, bewildered look of, like, what, what's happening? Um, and that's in the bottom right. I think that was the first time I ever went outside was to church. My father was a uh, AME pastor, and um, I grew up in the AME tradition and, uh, and went on from there to learn other things about life. But, but that's it. You can kill those. So I bring those up. One, for the people that have known me for a while. Some people, and it's, it's okay. I'm not, it's not an uncomfortable thing. We shouldn't be uncomfortable about it. But I know a lot of people are like, oh, that's why he has that complexion. Because my mother is, it's okay, you can laugh. It's, it, it was like, you know, my mother's very fair and my father is very not fair. And it was actually a, a weird thing for me from an identity standpoint because I, I actually didn't know till I was 13. I was sitting at the table with my grandmother and, um, and she was being interviewed about her life and she's pretty much the same complexion as my mother. And I learned that she, somebody was interviewing her and they said, you know, point blank, are you black? And, I, and so she, she laughed kind of about it because she had gotten that question before. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, she, and then but when, she, when the guy asked that question, are you black? Like, I was listening in too because I wanted to find out, like, is there anything else I should know? Is there any, like, other cultural background that I should know? Of? And she went on to explain that I think it's my great, great grandmother uh, was, was a slave and, and her suitor, or whatever you want to call it, uh, I don't know the political correct term for that, um, he was a 32nd hear me, 32nd of French descent. So I took French a lot in school, and I got really excited, but then I paused. I was like, wait a minute. He's not even purely French, so I still don't really know the degree to which my lineage goes. I don't even know the side of my father and, and, and his history and, and where they come from, but I bring all that up because race is a big deal in my life and, and who I am as a human being. Um, I wake up and see what I see every day. Um, but it's, it's related to what we're going to talk about, about relinquishing the false self. So um, as we begin, for some, I hope, and for others, we're continuing uh, this conversation. Um, and as we continue this conversation about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's about, about what it means to follow him, we trust in God. Specifically, though, we trust in Christ. I am very much uh, a fan of Scripture. I'm, I'm just big into it. You can call it coming from the Bible Belt. I'm really from Pittsburgh originally. I don't know why Andrew keeps thinking I'm from the South. But I, was, I only lived in Atlanta for like five years. But, but there are two scriptures that, that have a heavy influence on me that keep me coming back to the word. There's tons of beautiful poetry and, and uh, quotes from C.S. Lewis. And as many of you in this church know from Bono, um, that, that, make the, that make the claim about the purity of wanting the, all the things that are true and right and just. But I don't read that much, so the thing that I do read is scripture outside of, of my profession. So uh, the scriptures that I just wanna just throw out there for you guys, and I didn't put them on the slide, but the reason why I find scripture so heavy is, is I think of um, a couple different scriptures. One from Hebrews, is Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I mean, that's, there were some heavy words. And I know that some people are kind of naysayers about, you know, they're like, ah, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about scripture, and, and I understand that. Um, but when you couple it with additional scriptures, like this other one in 2 Timothy, 
uh, you see, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And some people say, well, uh, yeah, I get it. I mean, so you're saying this book is saying it's awesome. Yeah, but it, it goes on. It says, so it does all those things for training and correcting and rebuking for the purpose of the servant so that the servant may be thoroughly equipped so that the servant may be thoroughly ready, so that the servant, the woman or man of God who loves Christ, who loves God and wants to figure out how to do better, will be equipped to handle any situation, every good work. And that's why I trust in it. So as we go through this whole relinquishing the false self, I'm gonna to refer to scripture. I don't have Bono quotes, but I may consider reading up or listening to Bono. I wasn't a big U2 fan, I was more into Green Day. Um, so relinquishing the false self, there's this book, uh, if Chris could put up that, the definition. The false self, and again, Andrew, he, he dug into it. We have this book available. We look at it as a guide, just a way of supplementing what says in Scripture, supplementing what uh, the Holy Spirit may guide you to understand about yourself and your walk in Christ. Um, but it's a great book. It's very practical. I was very surprised when I read it. Um, and it goes through these different explicit disciplines. And it's kind of cool because it spells out worship. So there's a W, an O, an R. And the R is the relinquishing the false self. And even within those, it's a subset of additional specific disciplines. And I'm going to address those um, towards the end. But um, th- just to read the definition, the false self strives to cobble together an identity. An identity from secondary things. So whether that's reputation, whether that's success, whether that's your family, your jobs, your health, how you take care of yourself, how you, you wake up in the morning and, and are, are dedicated to making sure you eat right or exercise, and of course, race. And that's from the author. So that's the author's definition. And so I read through it a couple times and I said, okay, so you could argue or you could look at it as the, the false self is this compilation, and I'd argue it's an incomplete one at that, that we cobble together from things that ought to be secondary, right? They, they should be secondary, but somehow they fraudulently become primary, and, and not just primary, but primary, our primary source of trust. And, and I'll, take a, I'll try to jump one step further, and this, this may get me into trouble, but they become almost as false idols. They become our primary source of attention when they should be considered secondary to Christ and who he should be in our lives. And these things shift in importance. Some days it's you being a father. Some days it's being uh, in your profession, whatever your profession may be. So um, a couple examples. The first example, we'll put up my famous word cloud. I was very excited about this. I don't, uh, I'm not in, I'm in technology, but I don't, I don't do the kind of IT related things. That was probably a microaggression against any IT administrator. Um, but so there's a couple things, a couple, a few things that I used, words to describe me. You can't see all of them, so I apologize, but I just highlighted a few. And um, so I have up there, the really small ones are like positive. I I try to be positive most of the time. Um, I say extrovert. I became very extroverted almost to a fault. Uh, People found me very annoying when I was in college. Um, uh, I have very tiny letters. You can't even see them. Three, three little letters, OCD. So that, that I'm the little OCD, a little bit issue, and we'll talk about that in a second. But you see the larger issues like homeowner and husband and multitasking, and they all kind of culminate into this organized, right? And I, Andrea, my wife will tell you, when we first got married, I had this issue, 
uh, of being very organized. I didn't understand fully that whole two become one and you're gonna have to make some adjustments because I just, it just didn't make sense to me. You would want to have, after you finish eating dinner, the dishes done right when you're done eating because then you don't have to do them later, right? I would want to make sure if, if I could achieve mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, washing the bathroom, cleaning the bathroom, and sweeping up the floor on the same day on a Saturday and still be able to spend time and eat some pizza that afternoon, that was a fantastic day. And I would go through my entire day, I would plan out. So I'm an engineer, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit in a second, but I, I'm, so I'm very methodical, and, and my father, uh, he had a very heavy presence, so I was very intent on things going a specific way and forgetting that I was living with someone else that didn't do things that way. That made a big difference. I didn't, I didn't really think that went through. But that thing, that, that need to be organized, and it really stems from a control issue, right? We, we want to be in control. We want to do things the way we want to do. We just had a love and marriage class, and I, I hope that one of the things that was covered was this notion that you're, you're, you're serving someone else now. You're not serving yourself. So it's great when everything goes wonderful. You get these high highs. You know, every, the lawn was cut, and the dishes were done, and, and now I have time to relax and hang out. But now it can start to, to cause a riff. And I use marriage as the example. It could start to cause a riff, and, and I thank God for my wife that she was patient enough. God knows that was God's grace to show me patience and for her to show me sadness and frustration. Like, why, why does it matter? Why is it so serious, you know, to quote the joker? Like, why, why is that such a big deal? So the scriptural reference I use is, and it's not, it's not a direct correlation, but, and, and that's why I put it, Luke 12, verse 13 through 21. Take these down if you want. I'm not going to put them up there. I'm going to paraphrase, uh, not probably as accurately as the message, if those of you that know that translation. But uh, it, it reminds me so much of the man who Jesus demanded that uh, he had, Jesus comes on the scene, and, and this is in one of the Gospels in Luke, and Jesus comes on the scene, and, and he's clearly an authority, and so there's a follower, and he says, hey, I need I need you to tell my brother, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, are you, are you nuts? Like, what, do you, are you not paying attention to what's going on here, what I'm doing here? You're, you're just like the man, and he dives right into a parable. He says, you're like the man that, that just came upon all this wealth and identified, I have all this wealth and, and my crop is, is plenteous, and now how am I gonna store it all? I need, I need to keep it, and, and they have this need to control all they have. And so then he goes and builds a barn, so that he can store it all and keep it all for himself. And then God speaks down to him and says, why did you bother doing this? Didn't you know that you're gonna die tomorrow? So that, that brings up this example of how we get so finely tuned into things like being organized, being controlled, and they define us in our identity. But then something totally out of our control flips the script. I thought about that recently when, when I, you know, five years went by, my wife and I uh, just celebrated five years of marriage, and I, I told her, I have been, I've become more, uh, such a better person, I know it sounds cheesy, but I've become a better person because of her, because of her grace, and so that's given me the time recently, I, I don't know if I was lifting Olivia too much or something, but I hurt my back, like, seriously, I, could, I wasn't sure, and I avoided going to the doctor, of course, because strong men don't do that, but I avoided any kind of physician input, and I said, well, oh my goodness, eventually my back healed, I still got a little tweak here, but I won't be playing any tennis anytime soon, but I thought, what if... I was so dependent on those things, of getting those things done on a daily basis, 
and then I hurt my back, so I couldn't lift anything. So then the burden would be then on my wife to carry the physical load of the household. She already carries a, a major load of it with our daughter. But what if something flipped the switch, or God forbid, I, I lost the ability to walk, or something that prevented me from still attending to those, doing the dishes, wiping the floor, cleaning the bathroom, doing the lawn. What would I do? Would I, would I continue to wallow in pity? Most people say, no, you know, you'll, you'll get over it. Yeah, but it could still irk at me. But what if I look to Christ instead and say, you know what, Lord, no matter what, let me find a new way to serve you through serving my wife. The next example has to do with career. So I'm an engineer. I work down at the Navy in, uh, in Newport. Um, it's an awesome job. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that was a blessing to have that position. And I'm noticing a lot of opportunities to kind of like become the top dog. Like there's, there's actually a statistic out amongst the group that, um, you know, in maybe 10 years, two-thirds of our workforce is actually going to be eligible to retire. It doesn't mean they will, but they'll be eligible. And so that's brought with it this whole influx of new hires, folks that are just passionate, ready to hit the ground running, the millennials, you know, the millennials are coming in. I think I'm a millennial, I'm not sure, 82. Um, but I'm noticing that there's those folks that are already on their way to retirement, so they're good, they're set. But then there's this weird kind of mix, folks that are 10 to 15 years in, they have no plans of leaving necessarily because they, that's a secure place to be, it's a secure job. But some of them have, have obtained success and notoriety a good way, uh, for their position. So you can go to the next slide, actually. So engineer, right. Uh, and that's the scripture reference. It, they've, they've become very content and excited and pleased with, with how they are seen by other people and how they have not just a job but a career, something that, that fully defines them, that maybe, rightly or wrongly, their identity is somewhat rooted in. But now we have this changing tide, something that they have no control over, that it's not their issue, it wasn't their fault, but it is something that's gonna affect them. The specific examples, I think, in my building, actually, there's a lot of people that are being forced that have been there 10, 15 years, that have had their own office. Now they have to share, move over. Millennials are coming, you know? And it, I, I try to think about what it's like for them from their perspective, trying to understand where they're coming from. What if, in a blink of an eye, the script changes. Now your position is important, but the investment is now going to the younger generation, or maybe even worse, God forbid you lose your position, you lose your job, you have to change industries because it's too difficult to get back into the other industry that you're in because you've been dedicated. It's not your fault, it's management's decision. Things change, right? But is your identity rooted in that job or is it rooted in Christ? Is it rooted in the trust that he will still bring you to a new position, that he will open your eyes to a new opportunity? So the scripture reference uh, is very, if anybody you know, spends time with scripture, they know the story of the Pharisees, the Jewish people that, that are the religious elite. This is just one scripture reference from John 11, uh, 45 through 18. But if you think about it in, in, in a more broad context, who were the, the Pharisees? They had, they had control, they had uh, swag if I may use the technical term. They had a deal with the Roman government. They had control over their people. They had economic benefits. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I don't have years and years of study like Andrew and, and some of the other pastors here. But that's what you learn in just studying the Bible, that they were, they were pretty set apart, but they kind of got built up in themselves a little too much. 
and they had no control over it. Maybe if they paid attention to the word and they paid attention to the heart of what the scripture said that they studied so, so vehemently. But then Jesus shows up and said, hey, uh, I got some bad news. So you're actually gonna have to step aside. You actually have the one, you were the ones with the issues. And you're gonna have to step aside. So their identity was so rooted in being a Pharisee and beating, being the one that their people look to. And that's tough. And obviously it incited violence and incited them to, to lead and, and to lead Jesus to the gallows, so to speak. And so God used it for his glory, but regardless, it, it was still a major issue of identity for them. And so I, these are two quick examples, and I, I, think of, I can think of tons of others, uh, tons of others, but uh, the ones I definitely are, are reminded of are ones that I was experiencing personally when it comes to religion, when it comes to legalism. I came from, uh, when I, in my walk in Christ, I was, uh, you know, I came to a church in Texas, and I love those people to death, but they would argue peacefully, but they would argue over whether communion should come before offering. Their focus was so intent on making sure that what happened on Sunday happened exactly the right way. And it was a great place for me at the time, and where I was, I was an engineer, it made sense, let's follow this specific pattern, and if it's specifically written in the word, then we can just easily follow it. It's a little deeper than that, so that's why, that's why I, wrote the, I brought up that scripture in Hebrews, the word is alive and active. It changes for what it means for you today versus what it means for you in 10 years. It's gonna have a totally different meaning if you're dedicated to continuing to look at it repeatedly praying to God, not just reading it statically, believing, being insane enough to believe that the Holy Scriptures are sharper as a two-edged sword, are alive and active. So the final example, and I, I did this, um, you can bring up the last slide. Uh, the final example I bring up, obviously, figure it'd be a nice touch to end on, is this notion of, of race. Now, I brought the pictures up. I, I thought it's, it's amusing. I just, I love talking about race. I love talking about, um, you know, things, that, reasons why I, I look the way I look. And um, if anybody is, um, anybody's in here, it's, it's, not just, it's not just race. There's other issues that we identify with. But race is one in particular special for me. My mother-in-law actually, I mean, because of the complexion of my parents, my mother-in-law, uh, her coworkers actually, they were like, what is he? Is, is he Egyptian? You know, is, is he Puerto Rican? Is he, uh, is he Dominican? We went down to the Dominican for our, for our wedding, our, our honeymoon. I said, I, I, got, I got a lot of favors because everybody thought I was speaking Spanish. Everybody came up saying, hablo español. I said, I don't, I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I bring it up and it's joking. And I personally, Lonnie T. Parker the fourth, I am comfortable talking about that. Please don't take this as a uh, authorization to go ask every person what their cultural makeup is. Some people are a little touchy about it, but I deal with it on, on a pretty regular basis. And it's brought me to so many different unique places in my life. I've been a part of so many different unique crowds and groups, sometimes for the sake of diversity, sometimes not. And it brings me to these high highs, these great places where I, you know, you look at our wedding party and, and you have somebody from South Africa of Indian descent. You have, uh, you know, black Americans, uh, white Americans, everyone that, that is just, it's this beautiful cultural mix. And you feel pretty good. You're like, all right, I'm pretty diverse. Being diverse is in. Diversity's cool. But every so often, every so often, and it doesn't fail, there is a... Facebook post 
or there's a news report, or there's a comment, an off-color comment that comes from somebody who I really thought, wow, I, didn't, I, I don't even know what to say. I got so comfortable being the only one in the room that now, I, should I even speak up? Should I even say this? Or will I, if, is, is what I say then gonna be representative of the entire group of my combination? You know how many combinations of cultures that we have in this country? And, and eventually, maybe just for how we wanna process things, we have to you know, be very uh, methodical in how we combine and, and, and segregate and segment, just so we can know. It's just, we just have to know. If anybody's familiar with the term microaggression, uh, I talk about this with Adam Croft. He's another one of the leaders here. I love microaggressions. I don't love them that they happen, but I love that they, they exist because ultimately they break us down. They, everybody has said something offensive to someone else. It doesn't have to be about race. It can be about gender. Oh, don't, don't be such a girl. You know, oh, it could be about education. Oh, well, you know, you didn't go to college, so, you know, you're not gonna know what I'm talking about. Again, it doesn't have to be race. It, it, could, be, it could be your field of study. I think back to when I was an engineer and in, in, in studying engineer in Rochester, and ignorantly, because I was just an 18, 19, 20-year-old, we'd be very bitter because we'd see all the photo students, all the art students, sitting outside on the lawn, looking like they're having a ball. And then we say, it's okay, they're not gonna get jobs anyway. Well, that was a microaggression. It's funny. It is funny, kind of, but it's not funny. It's not funny, don't laugh. <laughs> but it took time and maturity for me to learn and look back and say, oh my goodness, how could I, how could I make fun of them? The, the pain and the frustration that they must have gone through when they put their heart and soul to create a portfolio. Didn't think I knew about that. To, to submit to RISD. I had a good friend, he actually submitted a portfolio and that was the first thing I'd ever heard of that. And then have that portfolio submitted or have that artwork submitted and then somebody rip it apart just because they didn't like it that day. To think that I, I know what that pain is like, how arrogant of me. So it's not just race. Sometimes it's your faith. I'll get into conversations at work and sometimes somebody will say, oh yeah, you should meet such and such. He's also religious. Religious? Like what? I mean, I think I know what you mean when you say religious. But my relationship with Christ is so much more than religion. It doesn't matter whether I collect the offering or have communion or execute the, the, the have the, the baptism first. That doesn't matter to me. I'm hoping that we, we look at Christ. I'm hoping that we spend this entire time collectively worshiping God through his son Christ. So the scripture reference that I've, I've made, and this is, this is kind of, uh, for me it was challenging to try and figure out how to tie it all in, but it's the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan, most people, most of us think of the Good Samaritan that in, um, I don't want to say the first or third person, I don't, I don't really know, but essentially you, you have this Jewish man, well, presumably he's Jewish, it's a parable, so, and he's walking along and he gets robbed, he gets stolen, he, somebody beats him up, he's bloodied, bruised, battered, lying in a ditch, ready to die hoping that anybody will come save him. And then what happens? Two people, two specific individuals, a Levite and a priest, at least that's what scripture tells us, walk right by him. One crosses the street. These are the people that are supposed to be the supportive. These are the ones that are supposed to, hey, it's not just my job, but that's on my heart. I can't leave you lying here. 
But lo and behold, a Samaritan, we learn Samaritan comes by. He's a good Samaritan. And we tend to put ourselves in the position of the Samaritan. Yes, I will be the good Samaritan. I will be that person that helps that poor individual that needed help. But if you understand a little bit of history, and I'm not a history expert on it, but I've heard some really good teaching. If anybody's heard of John MacArthur, regardless of your political affiliation, um, he's an excellent pastor from out in California, and he gave this excellent um, background on the history of Samaria and the Jewish people, Samaritans, and why you hear that term Samaritan as such a distinct culture. I'd argue, and they're not equivalent, they're not identical, but I'd argue they're analogous, and they have some relationship between... um, race relations in this country today, spanning from the 50s forward or or back from slavery forward, in how there were two groups of people, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Samaritans, And the the Jewish people actually looked down on the Samaritans. Again, it's not identical. It's just kind of trying to draw an analogy. So it was actually considered unlawful, like wrong for a Jewish person to even touch, be affiliated, talk to, be seen with a Samaritan. And that's what makes the the story so heavy for me when I think of Instead of us looking at ourselves as the Samaritan, what if we're the ones, what if we're the Jew, what if we're the ones that are bloodied, that we're down on the ground, we're bleeding, we need help? That says a lot, that that says something much different about the story from the Jewish person's perspective. It says, oh my goodness, they were bloodied, bruised, beaten. They didn't even care that this good Samaritan came by. They just needed anybody to help. That's heavy because they're, they're throwing away all their preconceived notions. They're, they're getting rid of all uh, biases that they may have because they're dying. They're suffering. It's kind of a heavy example, but it, that's what it is. And so I imagine, what if, what if we are the ones that are bloodied? What if we are the ones that we've had our high highs, but we've also had our low lows. We've been bruised. We've been marginalized. Again, I said this doesn't, this doesn't it's not all-inclusive to just race. We each probably have some kind of issue that we struggle with, that we, we feel so passionate about. It could be family ties. It could be marriage. And imagine coming into a marriage and, and, and the family that you marry into doesn't accept you. But marriage is so important to you and you want to be dedicated, but yet you have these people that are supposed to love you but don't. And so it becomes this struggle and you end up fighting with yourself. You end up identifying these, these issues about how you, you, it becomes paralyzing. You're thinking every day, you wake up, you can't go to your job, you can't be effective at your work, you can't love your child as much. You slip into this analysis paralysis state. And I go through that as, 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 a, as a black male. My, my wife goes through it in the circles that she rolls into. My daughter will go through it, I'm pretty sure. Some of us will go through it for different reasons. But and I'll pose this question and to try and, and wrap up this, this analogy this way in two different ways. One, if you're a Christian here, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you trust in God, you love God, you're just, you struggle, you're, all of us struggle. You're just trying to figure out, hey, how can I take the next step? How can I do a little bit better in building that relationship with Christ? Will you stay within the margins? Will you stay within your bloodied and bruised state? Or will you look across to that person you really shouldn't, the world says you shouldn't interact with. If I allow every microaggression that, that, that is said towards me or every time I feel marginalized, will I, will I refuse to welcome Andrew and fellowship into my home just because he's white and, and, and that's something I'm not supposed to trust? I, I keep him close, but you know, keep, don't keep him that close. 
if you're, I mean, you could go through the examples, right? Can you trust that other group to try and relinquish the false identity that you're so dependent on being black American, being an artist, being whatever? And the other way I'll pose it to those that don't necessarily know Christ, they may be atheists, they may be um, agnostic, whatever you choose to believe. If anything that I've said as an example of that being marginalized, being bloodied, being bruised has resonated with you, you say, yes, no, that does happen to me. That is true. I don't trust in Jesus, but I, I get that. That's, that. That totally is, I'm on par with that because that happens. That's life. Are you bold enough, though he wasn't a Samaritan, he was a Jew, are you bold enough to trust in Jesus? the person that all your colleagues, all your friends, all your inner circle, other people who don't trust Christ, who look at Jesus as just another example of a failed religion, will you be bold enough to take the gift that he's offering, the gift of life that he's offering? He says to the woman at the well, if you, if you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst. Are you bold enough to trust that? So... Um, the reason I bring all these examples up and I hope something came through, but our trust has to be in Christ, the solid rock. That's why there's so many songs that have been written about it. We, talk, we hear about the analogy of sinking sand. You know, My hope is built on nothing less. In Matthew and Luke, and just read a gospel. Just spend some time and read a gospel. But our trust should be in Christ, the solid rock, because that is not wavering. That will not change in a flip of an eye. That will not change if you all of a sudden become paralyzed. That will not change if your career takes a drastic turn. That will not change as microaggressions and hate and frustration and anger that the world defines continues to happen and change what all of a sudden is the new norm. Jesus is not changing. So there's some practical steps. Andrew introduced this notion of um, you know, relinquishing the false self and the specific disciplines, and I picked out two. And I'll, I'll invite the, the worship team up now as, as I wrap up. But um, there's two and there's multiple. They'll be up on the website uh, for people to access. But the two that I found most profound, the first one is detachment. And no, this doesn't mean go and sell everything you have. I would talk to a few people about that. Don't get all into that. Just, just consult some friends. This is not about giving up everything. This means detaching emotionally, spiritually, even sometimes physically from a relationship you know is not healthy, a relationship with someone or something detach from it. Don't be dependent on that thing. It could still be a positive thing. It could be your job, but, re but recognize that your job does not define you. You have the opportunity to allow Christ to define who you are. And the scripture references are up there, actually. Thank you. Oh, this was on time. I like that, Chris. Whoops. I needed that page. All right. Don't let, don't let these things define who you are and, and what you will be when God calls you I, let, I just write the scriptures down. I won't go through the exact scripture. But the other thing, once you've detached, and this is hard, this is not an easy thing to do, but is submit. Submission is, I would argue, one of the most misunderstood concepts in scripture, in, in life. Submit is not becoming a lesser person. It is acknowledging that there is a higher power. That's why you see in Ephesians, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. It doesn't just say submit to your husbands and it's done. It says, no, do it because they are submitting to Christ or they should be submitting to the Lord. Have enough trust in who your husband is and what he's trying to do in your life to help build you. And he may not be doing that and, and that's okay. There's, there's a patience and that's why you seek community. That's why you seek family. 
But the whole purpose is, is so that you can become less. It says in John 3.3, 3, you can put the last slide up. It says in John 3.3, 3, he must become greater and I must become less. And we hear it so many different ways. We hear it in many different examples and, and maybe the way that I've translated this doesn't, doesn't resonate with you and that's fine because this was a long service. But come back. Come hear Andrew preach. Come hear the other leadership preach. Come meet the individuals. When you have that awkward time of fellowship, learn a little bit more about that person and help them remind you or let, let that experience remind you that it, it's, your identity is in Christ first. So um, I thank you. I thank you for the time, for your patience, um, your understanding. We're gonna transition, but uh, I just wanna pray over us um, and conclude this time uh, as we move into the next period, period of reflection. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I am humbled. I come before you praying for every single individual um, underneath the sound of my voice that you would do an amazing, unexpected work in them, in their lives, in their trust in who you are, that you'd build them up, that you'd help them explore and understand more fully that they'd start asking the question why and why and not just accept things the way they are, but be wild and insane enough to believe that if they trust in you through your son Christ, they will see an amazing transformation. Keep them patient. Keep them understanding that it's not an overnight process. It is a period of growth, Lord. Lord, search me. Search and find any wicked way in me, Lord. Let me redirect redirect my heart towards you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.